Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. I don't know if you know this, Sherry, but before this stint of sobriety that is almost five years old now, I made it to six months of sobriety twice and nine months of sobriety once. Did you know that? I did know that. Because you were... I lived you were here. here. Yeah. Yeah. You lived through that. Um, but in all three of those cases, two times half a year and once almost a full year, I relapsed. And there are lots of different reasons why people relapse. There are like big triggers that hit people. The subconscious mind takes over. We can get ourselves into a position where we're too hungry or tired and our brain goes from the prefrontal cortex where we do our good thinking to our amygdala, which is survival mode. And when we associate alcohol with survival, that drives us to the liquor store almost subconsciously. There are lots of reasons why people relapse. But in those three cases for me, after long-term, relatively long-term sobriety, two six-months and one nine-month period... I relapsed because I still felt like shit. I had, you know, gotten past a lot of the the temptation. My routines and habits had changed. I was no longer on a daily, you know, nightly basis craving alcohol. And I was no longer craving alcohol every weekend when I typically, when I had been drinking, I drank a lot more on the weekends. So those, those kind of cravings had gone. But... I still felt bad. And the reason is my pleasure neurotransmitters had not yet returned to near normal function. That stuff takes a year or more for most of us. That's the the kind of popular timeline that people share. It takes a year, year plus before you start feeling good about the, the things we should feel good about. So I was basically living a joyless recovery for the first for both of those two six-month periods and the nine-month period. And then even this time around, when I've made it over the hump to permanent sobriety, that first year was, it was pretty miserable. And just to give, I I know a lot of our listeners probably understand this. I just want to give a brief explanation of how this pleasure neurotransmitter stuff works. There are basically, you know, there are a number of neurotransmitters that are responsible for our pleasure. The one that's in the press a lot and the people tend to know is dopamine. Uh, That dopamine release in our brains comes with things that we find pleasure, you know, find pleasurable. And, but, but our brain is constantly looking for equilibrium. And if our brains, a brain like mine finds a lot of pleasure from consuming alcohol, every time I drank, I would get a, a jolt of dopamine. The brain eventually says, listen, this guy's getting too much dopamine. He gets it when he drinks and he gets it for all these other pleasurable activities. So the brain starts to reserve dopamine release for only when we drink, which is really, really bad because it means if other good things happen in our lives that don't rise to the same level of euphoria that drinking does for someone like me, then we get no jolt of uh, dopamine and there's no association, no pleasurable association with things that should be pleasurable like like a kiss from our wife or a beautiful sunset or our kids doing well in in school. Those things that should make us feel good don't. 
And that's basically how addiction works in a really, you know, shorthand version. And to reverse that just takes a ton of time without drinking. Eventually, those neurotransmitters will start to, to fire and we will get dopamine jolts, um, you know, when we're petting our dog or if we're shooting hoops with our kids. The things that, that should bring those, you know, minor uh, pleasurable experiences, they start to to get their share of dopamine as well because to stay in equilibrium, the brain no longer has to reserve all the dopamine for alcohol because there's no more alcohol being consumed. Whew. You've heard that before, Sherry. Yeah, I think maybe once or twice. Yeah. I also want to kind of say like, you know, early in your, in the podcast, we had the addiction nutritionist on, so... Nutrition, does that help speed up the process of the dopamine? Like when you would do that amino acid diet, did that, does that help? Because I know you did that after you'd almost been a year sober, but does that help for those people that are in the early parts of recovery? Not only does that help for people that are in early recovery, I think that's just how humans are supposed to live because I have gotten away from eating that way as of late and I've been struggling lately with feeling good. So yeah, basically, you know, the episode four of this podcast would be a great one for people to look back on if they want more information about addiction nutrition when we had Kelly Miller on. But basically, we have to eat the right foods, and we're talking above ground vegetables and, and you know clean animal proteins. These things work in conjunction with each other to regenerate the neurotransmitters in our brains that might have been on vacation or just completely shut down due to our alcohol consumption. So yeah, what we eat definitely has a big impact, but it's not just on, it's for anybody. I mean, it it is a big part of recovery, but if you want to feel good in general as a human, if you don't feel good and and you're not an alcoholic, um, there's probably a lot of things you can do diet wise to improve how you feel. And they often say that exercise and doing things that, you know, give that, sort of a boost to those um, dopamine and like, you know, the runner's high and stuff. Do you also Would you also recommend in those earlier parts like to kind of try a new activity maybe or just stick with what you know or just kind of muddle through? Yeah, it's funny. That's one of those things that we all kind of give a tip of the hat to and we acknowledge that it's important, but then we don't do it. Like we, at least for me and I think a lot of people, we we give lip service to it. Oh yeah, it's important to get exercise, it's important to get outside. But I'm really busy with work and I'm busy with the kids and I'm feeling lazy and I want to just zone out on Netflix. And then we still feel bad and we don't we we like we can theoretically connect the dots, but we can't do it in practice because I don't I think for many of us we just don't believe the power of it. So yes, getting out in nature and getting exercise are huge, not just in early recovery, but I think as an ongoing practice. And and I've noticed in my life, when I get away from that, I start to feel bad. And, it, you know, that that's when, that's when I succumb now, after five years of sobriety, that's when I succumb to my secondary addictions. And that's a great segue, Sherry, because that's what I want to talk about next. You know, you hear the term dry drunk. You hear about how it's not enough to just stop drinking. You've got to address your underlying issues, the underlying causes of your addiction. And I just believe wholeheartedly in that. It, 
stopping drinking is a necessary prerequisite, but it doesn't fix anything. It doesn't fix the relationship and it doesn't fix us as individuals either. And so when we don't address the underlying causes, we just pick pick up something else. And it, for most of us, I think, for many of us anyway, certainly in my case, the the secondary addiction that we pick up isn't as traumatic. It doesn't have as much calamity involved. And so from an outsider, even from people that we're in close relationship with, they don't see it as being quite as damaging. But it's still preventing us from healing because we're not addressing the thing that we were drinking to cover up. So for me, you know, we've we've talked about this. I, I basically have three secondary addictions that I've also had to work on. Um, I've had to work on a, a bit of a sex addiction, a food addiction, and a work addiction. I want to talk about the sex addiction first because that's the one that I think it sounds worse than it is. It sounds like I'm running around all over town, you know, getting a lot of massages at massage, happy ending massage parlors or, or just. Or scanning the internet, but jump right in it. Explain quickly. I don't want this to linger. Yeah. So (laughs) I haven't done any of that. I've never done any of that. Um, Thankfully, what a blessing that, that. Um, cheating has never been part of our story, but the the dopamine that comes from sex for many people, I think everybody, I don't know, definitely males. The dopamine that comes from sex for me um, was another way to get that you know that hit of relief from the pain that I was in from my primary underlying cause, and so I in early recovery wanted to have a lot of sex way more than you were interested in because you basically, you know, hated my guts at the time and thought I was repulsive. And so that was a, you know, of, of my secondary addictions, that's definitely the one that's had the most impact on you. Um, and been something that I'm pleased to say, you know, I feel pretty much clear of, um, I, I am now in a place where I would much prefer intimacy intimacy is a lot harder than just quick and easy sex, but I would much prefer intimacy to quick and easy sex. And so you and I are a lot closer in alignment now than we have ever been. You're making a face. You want me to stop talking about this? Yeah. Okay. Well, that uh, happy to move, happy to move past that first of my underlying or my uh, transferred addictions. Uh, you know, the other two are are food and work. Um, like anybody, I find pleasure in food. And what's hard about food as, as compared to alcohol, you know, alcohol is a yes or no answer. And for many of us, the answer is no. And that means sobriety. We just stay away from it and everything's fine. Uh, you can't stay away from food. We've got it. We've got to continue to eat food. And so we're constantly having to make good food choices. And when I'm having a particularly bad day, man, I hit that bag of potato chips or Doritos or whatever, or ice cream. And, uh, you know, the, the simple carbs and the sugars, they travel on the same neuropathways that alcohol does. And so it's just feeding that addiction um, brings that, that little bit of dopamine release, that little bit of a pleasure jolt which is really more relief than it is pleasure. And then I feel ashamed and beat myself up about it the next day. So very similar pattern with food 
to alcohol, not nearly the trauma for you. You know, there's no arguing or fighting. The shame that I feel is much less severe than it was with alcohol. So it's not as big an addiction, but it's still it's still there. Why are you making faces? <laughs> you like to share, so it it doesn't affect me other than when you say Oh, you get to hear me talk about it? You get to hear you talk about it. Well, aren't you glad we do this podcast so yeah. you can hear me talk about it right now too. And then, you know, the other one for me is work. It it took me a long time to really understand my underlying issues because I had a very nice childhood. Grew up with a sister and two parents that stayed married. We never wanted for anything. You know, the most traumatic thing that happened to me growing up was we moved from Kansas City to New Jersey in my uh, freshman year, in the middle of my freshman year in high school. And I don't want to downplay that because that's not an easy time to move. But that was, you know, when when people would talk about trauma, that was really the only thing I could come up with, and it it didn't seem like much, but. I came from a family that is driven toward success, academic success, athletic success. Um, There's just, you know, very, very little tolerance for, for failure or anything less than being the best we can be. You know, I wasn't like beaten with a stick to, to, to become a better athlete. Like I don't want to over dramatize this, but I definitely knew what was and what was not acceptable and academic performance and, you know, be doing the best I could in, in that area. And then that translating into doing the best that I could, um, career wise was both a spoken and also an unspoken, uh, driver in my life because my father was very successful. And so, you know, living up to that standard was important. And, this is a very, very common underlying cause in our shout sobriety group. And just in general, when I talk to people and listen to people and read people, um, this, this driver of what society considers success is a super common underlying cause. And so obviously that works in tandem with my, my work addiction. If you're not as successful as you think you need to be, if you feel bad about yourself, I have a friend that talks about imposter syndrome a lot. doesn't matter how much success he gets, how many degrees he gets behind his name, no matter how much um, outward and obvious success there is, he still feels like an imposter and it drives him to work more, work more, get another degree, try something else. And um, so that, you know, results in, in a work life balance that is way out of balance and completely unhealthy. Um, certainly the, the 15 years that we owned the bakery, that's when my alcohol addiction really took off. I've said many times I'm glad for that experience because uh, small business ownership drove me to the place I was going to eventually be a lot faster. So if I had continued to have a big corporate job, certainly there would have been a lot of stress with that as well. But it's just different when you own your own business and you're, you know, you and I were out on a limb on our own and that type of stress, um, definitely drove me to medicate with alcohol faster than I otherwise would have. And what's interesting about our 15 years of bakery ownership, it was, our results were mediocre at best. I mean, we never starved. 
We always had food. We always paid the mortgage. You know, everything was fine, but we never had the level of achievement that I had had previously in, in a corporate job or, or back in college. Um, and I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked longer hours and longer hours and we cut staff and did it ourselves more and more and more because we figured if we just did it ourselves, we could get it over the hump to being super successful. And it, that just never panned out. No matter what we tried, um, it never panned out. Do you remember the, the 15 years of, of bakery time? Do you remember that stress? I mean, obviously you remember that stress, but do you remember associating it with my drinking in a negative way or is that just a result that we can look back on and talk about? Mm. So you're asking me, do I, um, do I think that you drank more <laughs> as a result of the stress of the bakery? And did like, did you get a sense that it was medicinal? I did get a sense that it was medicinal at times, like when you would share, because oftentimes you wouldn't always share the financial stresses because you knew that it would, um, burden me and I would get really upset about it and I would start doing silly things that only cut pennies to save dollars, you know, like it didn't make sense. So you didn't want to burden me with it, but I could tell there were lots of times, um, that use it as medicinal and, you know, if somebody would call or quit, then you would like grab a drink, call in or quit and you would drive, grab a drink afterwards, you know, so you did things that lined up with needing, and then you would be like, it's a stress relief. I need this. I deserve this. Like those sort of um, excuses. And it's amazing in our culture if you say, oh, I'm just stressed. I'm going to have some drinks. As opposed to saying, you know, I I uh, am depressed or I have medical grade anxiety and I'm going to treat it with this medicine called alcohol. If you say that second thing, people are going to think, oh, that's not okay. Like yeah. what you're doing is wrong. But as long as you just call it stress and say, I'm just going to drink to make the stress go away. Yeah. Same exact thing. If you call it that, then societally we're like, oh, yeah. Well, and I think that, I mean, most of our vacations were with family. And so you always, I think that you kind of viewed the vacation with family as other people that could help me with the kids when they were younger. So I think that you use vacations to medicate and escape with alcohol because you didn't feel perhaps so bad because there were other adults around that could help me with the kids and you were like, I deserve this vacation, and this is how I want my vacation, and this escapism with alcohol. And certainly at your parents, there was an endless amount of alcohol that was provided. You know, that's that's very true. The other thing that's interesting, I mean, I can still... He, he, here's This will tell you how powerful these memories were for me. I can remember where I sat when we would be on vacation to... to have a phone call with the bakery in the evening mm -hmm. to talk about, we would talk about what the sales were for the day and what amount of bread we needed to make the next day. I don't Production want to bore numbers. everyone with the details, but there were decisions that I was really, we were a really small business. I was the only one that made those decisions and I had to make them every night. And I can remember specific spots where I would sit mm -hmm. to have these phone calls and they would be terrible. It would be in the height of the summer, which is yeah, so a really always... rough time in the bakery. It's hot. Nobody wants to buy bread. So um, the medicinal characteristics of alcohol were, it was almost worse mm -hmm. on vacation. If I was in the bakery during the day and I would slowly see that the trend was poor, yeah. then it, it kind of ease you into it. Yeah. Whereas if I just 
you know, I'd have all my hopes jacked up at eight o'clock at night that we had a good day, eight o'clock Eastern time, and I'd get that phone call, and and it was a terrible day. Then, then it would be like, would be oh, where really is the bottle drink. that's closest to me <laughs> yeah. that I can grab? Yeah, and I, that's when I kind of started to associate those two, and oftentimes I thought he's not even really sober enough to ingest this and like realize that. It is the middle of July. It is hot. It is hotter than sin sometimes in Denver in at that time. And it's a va- it's high to vacation season. So I could see that you could not correlate those two. And I always wondered like how the staff like felt calling you. Could they tell that you're you were a little off or you know, were you consciously oh, gonna sure. make the right decisions? Like I got worried about that at times. You know, I I am jealous of friends of ours that can separate the, their work success from their life success. And if there's ever a place that, that you should be able to do that, it's when you're on vacation with your family. You should look around and say, hey, whatever happens going forward, I have made it to this place, whatever this place is. And I've got this week of relaxation with the people that are most important to me. And you, you know, I would tell you that the numbers were bad and it didn't phase you at all. I mean, I think your biggest fear was what's this going to do to my husband? Yeah. You didn't worry about our business or our livelihood. You were, you could bounce back and move on. And I can think, I can think specifically of some friends that I know that they would be like, oh, well, you know, I'm here with all my people. That's what's important. Yeah. And I would think too, because I would, you know, in my own mind, I would be like, yeah, the pools are packed and nobody's at the grocery stores, you know, I could see and differentiate like what's going on in our life at the time of vacation. I mean, and it is, it's definitely spot on that you said it was more worrisome about how you were going to react. Yeah. I, I wanted so many times to say, why don't I take the call? Why don't I take the numbers? And you just, you know, you'll just find out at the end when you go back home and do the books. So, yeah, but of course I, couldn't have done that because alcohol had you in the grips that you needed to know. You needed to be in control. You needed to be aware, even if dis- disappointed. And that drive for achievement, you know, on a daily basis would just take a chunk out of me if if I didn't feel like I had achieved enough for that day, even on vacation. So really, the two most common underlying causes that we run into, and maybe this is because people that find us have read our book or they've listened to the podcast and they relate so much to our story. They're so similar to our story um, that their underlying causes are going to be similar to ours. But I really think these are are two of the most common reasons, common underlying reasons that people fall into the trap of addiction. And one of them, obviously, what we've just been talking about, that, that drive to success, um, that, you know, just absolute need to achieve. The other one that we hear the most about and that we work with people the most on is childhood trauma. Um, so again, my my big childhood trauma was moving my freshman year in high school, which isn't much, but it, it did have a bit of an impact. But, you know, obviously there's lots of people with, with really severe childhood trauma, um, sexual abuse, neglect, uh, you know, physical abuse, all kinds of all kinds of different things. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we've learned about, we actually did a podcast episode six months or so about uh, ago with Ms. Catherine Craig, good friend of ours, um, about adult childhood, um, ACEs, adult childhood 
experiences. Experiences. Or pardon me. Gosh, I'm saying it wrong. Adverse childhood experiences. I don't know why I said adult. That threw me off. Adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. And if you just Google adverse childhood experiences, you'll find lots of information about it. And you can take the little survey that tells you, it asks you questions about your childhood, and you can find out how many ACEs, as they say, you have, how many of these adverse childhood experiences impacted you or the loved one of yours that, that is the drinker. And it really, in our experience, those are the two most common causes for addiction and specifically alcoholism, childhood trauma and a, you know, a, an unrealistic drive toward achievement. So, you know, the topic for today is joyless recovery. Um, and what we're trying to do is give some background and then explain why that early sobriety period is often so joyless as it was for me. Um, and so, yeah, what did you want to say? Well, I just wanted to ask you, do you think that tied in with this joyless recovery because of the lack of the dopamine that happens, but do you find that some people might achieve that a little bit earlier, maybe because their life wasn't so joyless in before addiction to cold? Like, I mean, I know that there are some people who have had pretty, you know, good lives, but they still come under the grips of addiction. But I feel like, I feel like this. I feel like you and I, like looking back, I feel like you never really found contentment and joy from the get-go. Yeah. I thought you were either way up and everything was great. And I would always say you're an optimist. And if we were moving, and I was jokingly say, if we had to move into a cave, you'd be like, oh, cool. Look at all these rocks and dirt, you know. And I'm like... But I felt like that was fake in a lot of ways. Or it was so extreme that it wasn't really a contentment. You would just try to push yourself to find the positivity. And you would verbalize it. But I don't really feel, feel like you had a lot of contentment and joy even before you came under the grips of full active alcoholism. Well, contentment is really hard for anyone who is so driven by achievement. You, you can't be satisfied by today because what about tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I earned this or I got this reward or whatever. But what does that have to do with the next goal that I'm It's it's like it's like being a greyhound at the dog track and they're holding that rabbit out in front of you and you're not smart enough to realize you're never going to catch that rabbit. Mm-hmm. That rabbit's always going to be in front of you. And that's what this Just enjoy the fluffy tail. This <laughs> <laughs> looking at the fluffy tail. I guess. Well, that's what contentment would be looking at the fluffy tail, but the drive the unrealistic, not unrealistic unhealthy drive to achievement it is is that greyhound chasing the rabbit and you're never going to get there so yes i've always been optimistic i actually would like to live in a cave because there wouldn't be a furnace <laughs> that can break exactly exactly you knew exactly where i was gonna go yeah yeah so but but yeah the the drive to achievement um it's you know that's the thing that people like me need to fix Yes, you got to stop drinking, but then you got to fix that or these secondary addictions will take hold and you'll never really get to the root of contentment, which is just living in the moment. Um, I'm a big believer, Sherry, that self-esteem is the opposite of addiction. Sobriety isn't the opposite of addiction. Self-esteem is. 
and when we change our, this is, here's the trick. Here's the trick for somebody like me. When we change the definition of success away from monetary or, I don't know, fame and recognition or job status, when we change the definition of success away from those typical American culture um, definitions of success to something else, then we're able to feel good about ourselves and have that self-esteem that is, again, the opposite of addiction and keeps all of, keeps me from eating potato chips at this point. I mean, that's really the only of my addictions that's still going strong. Yeah, the sugar and the granola. Even though I buy you the good kind, you still eat it. Still loaded with sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing, the thing that keeps us from falling into those secondary addictions or keeps them at bay anyway is feeling good about ourselves. So when I talk about changing the definition of success, I mean, I know this, this, this sounds as cheesy, and I get that. I totally get that. This sounds as cheesy as saying, oh, you don't feel good? You should go for a walk out in nature. You know, if, if you're really that person that's not feeling good, that's in, you know, in depression, you're going to go, what the fuck is that going to do for <laughs> me? That's what you're going to say. Yeah. Like, that sounds stupid. But if you do it repeatedly and you get the exercise and you stay connected and you eat right, you do all these things, you get enough sleep, this really is the cure. Unless you want to take a pill. If you just want to take a pill, go find someone that will write you a script. But if you want to heal authentically, naturally, you got to do all these things. And so changing your definition of success is going to sound just as cheesy as that. But, but you know, the things that I need to really focus on is having really deep, healthy, meaningful conversations with people. Sometimes that's with you. Often that's with you. But sometimes it's with other people too. And, you know, people say to us all the time, oh, it must feel great to be helping so many people through these programs you do and through the podcast. There is, that does feel good. I'm achievement driven. Every week when I get the weekly statistics report on the podcast, I look at it. And if the numbers are good, I get excited. And if the numbers aren't good, I, I'm i like, oh, crap, I wonder what we did wrong. I don't dwell on it, though, the way I used to um, because I'm, I'm trying to recognize that that moment in time statistic, it doesn't matter. It And, you know, being vulnerable and putting something out that, that hopefully helps people yeah, it sort of feels good. But what feels really good is when we get the connection with people and we get to hear their side of it. And they, you know, it's not about them like like thanking us, N- nothing like that. It's, it's reaching a point where I can ask them questions, they can ask me questions. There's empathy going both ways. That has to be the definition of success for me in order for me to break free from this traditional achievement mindset that, success is what other people think of me. Success has to be about my experiences. And so I know that, and you say it on the podcast that I talk your ear off and I talk too much. So isn't it good that I get to talk to other people too? Yes. And have conversation. Nothing is more frustrating to me these days than when I can tell something's bothering somebody and maybe it's impacting our relationship and it might be impacting me to a degree, but I can't get them to tell me what it is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like I have work relationships where I know 
I know I'm not the only one that's frustrated by something, but someone's taking the high road and just being, oh, you know, we just got to keep going. We got to keep working. We'll get there. I don't know that we're going to get there. Like, <laughs> why can't we be realistic about that? Why can't we have that conversation? Yeah. Why do we have to just be troopers? And so, so those deep, meaningful, real, honest conversations, those have to be a definition of success for me. Where has that fit for you? I mean, you've never been impacted other than by my addiction. You've never had any addictions that I can that I can come up with or that you can come up well, with. I think food a little bit. Like I do enjoy having dessert at the end of the day. Do you beat yourself up about it the next day? No. Yeah, so you don't have any addictions. <laughs> I don't I don't beat myself up. Like sometimes I'm like, "Oh, I probably shouldn't have it." You know. Like when I make brownies for, you know, like I should make brownies for our neighbor for finding our son's phone, but they would probably think they're magic brownies here, pot brownies because they smoke pot because it is Colorado, but I would probably never give them the crust, the edges, because I just don't like that, but I would eat the edges. Then I'd be like, why did I eat the edges of the brownies? I don't even like the edges of the brownies. Hmm. So I guess that that's a little bit like I don't beat myself up and I'm like, well, that was just stupid. And then I move on. Maybe, I don't know. I'm what, sure I have some. What do you get? Because I just think your definition of success is different than mine. I yeah. don't think you have that achievement mindset. Like I've, I've really enjoyed helping with a part of my church job that um, helping in the preschool that's run from the church. I know that it has impacted the things I can do at home. Um, I don't feel like because I'm a you know, an obliger that I'm doing and I feel good helping because I don't want to see people struggle and get mad. And this is something that I am a staff member of the church. I am, um, because part of my job, I'm on the board of the preschool. So I have also enjoy, I also enjoy being around the little kids and having fun because we don't have little kids anymore. Yeah. Um, what about this thing that, that I'm saying is important to be a definition of success in my life? These deep and meaningful conversations besides the ones that you have with me sometimes yeah. willingly and sometimes reluctantly you have you have some really close friends yeah. that you share a lot with how does that feel when you're well that yeah that feels really good and i mean i'm not going to like name names but one of the people that work for the preschools been really you know we're just kind of having an employment hiring like the rest of the country right now yeah can't get and the big resignation work. of you know that happens this time of the year a lot of times and post pandemic sort of mindset so i have like kind of drawn her out a little bit cuz i like you and i have watched some news and economic and mental status reports on the employment situation so i have shared those with her and now she's sharing some things with me and I know that I feel like I'm a trusted confidant because she doesn't have anybody that's on her level and she can't really unburden herself. So it does make me feel good that she is able to trust me with that. And because she's a mother and, you know, I just know that you've, she's got younger kids than us and she's younger than us. And I just feel like she's got a lot of pressure on no. her. So it makes me feel good to help. But I don't carry the burden when I come home with that. I just know I feel good that she is let me in on some things. She probably feels lighter, um, but I don't let it affect my other part of my life, other than trying to figure out how I can help more, but not in a codependent way. You're very good at uh, being a friend, for one, but you're very good at 
uh, I guess, compartmentalizing or recognizing what's your issue and what's not much better than I am. I mean, you're like, like back to the bakery example, even, even though I could in a rational and logical way point to all these factors that were outside of our control that were holding us down, uh, economic factors, nutrition trend, fat, all, all this stuff, right? Even though I could understand that, I couldn't stop beating myself up because we just couldn't grow the business to the degree I wanted to. You don't seem to be impacted by that. You seem to be able to say, oh, we're trying X, Y, and Z. If they don't work, we'll try something else. And, you know, it's not our fault if it if it doesn't go so well. I think that I've gotten better with that throughout the years. I also think that maybe, like, with the example of the bakery, I kind of felt like we went into it and... I'm not saying anything you don't know, Matt. You knew that you went in with this attitude, I'm going to be the best owner. I knew more than everybody else out there. Absolutely. And so I kind of felt like it was meant to happen. Knock Uh, me down a peg or 40. (laughs) (laughs) To humble you a little bit and realize that success doesn't always look like what you think it is. Yeah. And it's maybe it's my belief system. Um. I remember some of our family members like, why do you have to go to this? Like, you know, why can't you just, because we were living closer to my family, like by four hours, and they were very sad to see us move because we had our baby to 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 do the bakery. bakery, And, you know, they're like, why can't you just get a job? I'm like, he doesn't want a job. He wants to find success in a career. And, you know, that's why he went to college. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, you probably would have been happier just, you know, being a factory worker or something i don't know maybe you would have found commitment contentment there i doubt it but nope, you had to chase and achieve to something make my widgets faster than the next guy yeah, and and i remember you like even in the interviews you're like oh you don't have to be there all the time they say it's a two you know it should be a, a two partnership you know ownership so yeah you won't have to be there you can stay home with the kids all the time i won't need you and we know it all better and so i kind of felt like and there, but there have been other things. But that I'll I need like. you as the punching bag when I get home and start <laughs> yeah. drinking. Yeah, but also I feel like uh, with, like I said, my belief system, I felt like there is a, uh, punishment is too harsh of a word. But I did grow up in I wouldn't say a fundamentalist Christian, but there was a lot of talk about the Old Testament when I was growing up. So there was some sort of punishment. Like I would say, oh, Matt's an alcoholic. He is um, not happy, and this is not the um, relationship I wanted. When I first met him that I thought we would have, it's because I sought him out to do something for me instead of it just being mutual in a lot of ways. Mm. So I feel like maybe just my upbringing has kind of made it like, well, you know, that joke about if you want to make God laugh. Tell him your plans. Tell him your plans. Yeah. All right. So for me, deep conversations need to be something that I becomes a one of the definitions of success for me and and increasingly it is we talked a little bit about this and i know you don't want to talk more about it but intimacy versus sex i mean this just naturally happened for me it isn't you know i've read a ton of stuff but it isn't like this was a topic that i've been able to find a lot of conversation on um but just naturally there became a lack of fulfillment with Um, dutiful routine sex and I have become increasingly willing to to wait for the really special connected 
intimate moments. And, and I think that, you know, it definitely has to be one of the things that I look at as a definition of success in our, in myself, in our relationship and our marriage recovery. Um, so getting away from that addiction, you know, that secondary addiction has been really, really important. And I've really enjoyed finding really intimate moments with you. Uh, it's really great. Um, the next one on my list of things I need to change and they need to become my definitions of success is time on self-care. And I know like there are probably dudes that'll listen to this and want to just beat me up for saying something so wussy. I mean, that's how it still feels. Even though we talk about this all the time and I write about it all the time, it still feels totally wussy to say the word self-care. Um, but going yeah, back... Kind of, I wish there was another... Another, yeah, I don't know. Another, another way what? To describe it. Then self-care? Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter what word you use once you start describing what it means, which is get out in nature, take a nap, get enough sleep, eat right... Get exercise. Remove yourself. Have from some toxic alone people. time. Yeah, remove yourself from toxic people. Um, take your responsibilities. Put them in a box. <laughs> close the box and put it away, and go do something that doesn't involve your responsibilities. Sometimes, all of those things are, are I think, for me, self care, and even talking about them is hard. But I, I do recognize that it's not just lip service important. It's really important. It's it's a key to... Uh, that. That's where the release has to come from. That's where the relief has to come from. Because the artificial release and relief that comes from things like alcohol and food and sex and overworking, those aren't healthy. Uh, I've proven it over and over. So I've got to really embrace... And, you know, there's lots of people that that a secondary addiction becomes exercise itself. Mm -hmm. You know, they become, they, they just start running or biking and doing so to an extent that uh, isn't healthy. And, you know, that that honestly has never been a problem for me. Um, I don't get the runner's high thing. I mean, I, I have a couple of times in my life, but mostly I go run my three, four, five miles and I'm good. And there isn't like this craving to run 20 miles at a setting. That sounds miserable. So that focus on self-care has to be not just something that I do if I can squeeze it in. It has to be a priority. It has to be a focus of what I would consider success for myself. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about could be a subject of its own podcast episode entirely, but I want to talk about parenting. Parenting has to become a definition of success for me, and I think for a lot of people, in order for them to move past their addictions and move past their underlying issues. You know, we say that nothing is more important than parenting. We say it and we believe it. I believe in my mind I always have, even when I was drinking. There's no, there's no responsibility that I'll ever have that's more important than raising my kids. Believe that in my heart. But my actions didn't show it. I would work ridiculous hours. I would drink in my off time when I could be spending time with the kids. I honestly, I, I just wrote a, a blog piece about alcoholic parenting on soberandunashamed.com. Um, it's gotten a lot of feedback. I A lot of people have resonated with it, and I would recommend 
reading it if you are so inclined. But I admitted in that piece that when I was a drinker, spending time with my kids, it wasn't fun. As much as I knew that spending time with my kids and being a good parent was the most important thing I could do, I didn't enjoy it. I would have preferred to have been sitting in the basement by myself, staring at the television and drinking. That's horrifically embarrassing to admit. But, you know, again, it's, it's really important for us to own the truth and recognize how important parenting is and how dysfunctional parenting becomes when alcohol is involved. And I'm not even talking about addiction. I, I don't think there's a role for alcohol in parenting, period. I think it's a distraction and, a, and setting a bad example. I can easily get on, get on the soapbox on that, but I'll spare you. Um, but, uh, you know, just spending time with my kids didn't deliver any dopamine when I was drinking. And even now, even in sobriety, it, it's still, it. I don't think it delivers as much of a, a pleasure pop for me as it does for you. And I think there is a gender difference. We work with a lot of men and we work with a lot of women. And I just can't ignore in the interest of equality, the gender difference that it clearly exists. You know, when, let me, let me give you an example. When when the kids are off school for a few days and you and I are working and we've got all of our responsibilities, we're not off from our responsibilities just because the kids are off school, you will get some severe mother's guilt if you don't take time and do something. Go to the museum, go to the water park, go do something with the kids. And I, my reaction to that is always, Sherry, it's not your fault that Denver Public Schools can't keep them in school five days a week. It's not your fault that the teachers union so strong and negotiated these days off or whatever, whatever the example might be. Um, but tr- I'm trying to ease your mother's guilt by telling you what you're doing in your day to day with your workload is fine. Um, stay focused on that achievement, Sherry. That's the evil kind of Matt voice. But I've come to realize, no, that mother's guilt that you feel that comes because you genuinely enjoy spending time with our kids, and it's a genuine priority in your life. Because that's me staying focused on my achievement. Yeah. But you like it, too. Most of the time, if they're not arguing. Yeah. Definitely, uh, I enjoyed it a lot more when they were younger, and they wanted to do things with me. <laughs> now they're teens, and they don't always want to do things with me. But I still do. I still do have that. You get more of a pleasure hit from it mm-hmm. than I do. It's embarrassing to say, man, they're my kids. They're the most important thing in my life. Right now, our daughter's going through something really tough, and you and I are both all hands on deck, and I don't, I, I feel, gr- you know, great about our action in helping her through the thing that she's dealing with. But on the day-to-day, on the day-to-day, if it's, oh, I could go get a little more work done, or I could go shoot hoops with the boys in the driveway, I sadly often will choose to go get a little bit more work done. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. That's not... I shouldn't say wrong. Makes me feel bad, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you know, I think for me, and I think for a lot of people, yes, we recognize the importance of parenting, but kids become a form of, like, a trophy for our achievement. If my kid 
grows up and goes to a, a fancy college and gets a important career degree or important job after their degree, then I can brag about that at cocktail parties to my friends about what a great job I did raising my kids because look how successful they are. That's not what it's about. If my kid is a starving artist because art brings them joy, I should be super excited about that. Thank God you found a way to be happy. And yeah, it's going to be a tough life. You're going to have to scrape and scratch to, to make a living. But who cares? You found a way to make make yourself happy. That should be what's the most important for, you know, kind of for all of us. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to break this cycle of of this achievement orientation and change it into a happiness, a joyfulness association. See, we are coming back around to joyfulness eventually. Does that make sense? Yeah. It absolutely makes sense. So I don't think we can ignore the gender differences in parenting, but, you know, that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do about them. Again, back to kind of what we're talking about here. My my self-esteem as a recovering alcoholic is so important because self-esteem is the opposite of addiction. And in order for me to feel good about myself, I have to change my definition of success to the things that have a chance to make me feel good about myself. Those deep conversations, intimacy versus sex, time spent on self-care, and parenting. Parenting for the right reasons and the right ways. Choosing shooting hoops versus getting some little bit more written or something stupid. Why are you laughing? Oh, when you were saying... I always kick their ass when I shoot hoops with them anyway. I'm still a better basketball player than all of them. Well... Why wouldn't I enjoy that? I know. Well, the last time I did it, like, I got totally, like, trash mouth, smack talk by our sixth grader when I was beating him. Yeah. But during your monologue, and I'll call it your monologue at the beginning, I was noticing that the leaves were rustling outside, and I'm like, ooh, it's very windy today. It happens to be a day our kids are out of school, and I was like, I want to do something with the sixth grader, like you were mentioning, that I like to find things to do. And I forgot we have a brand new kite downstairs that's not been opened and ruined because ours always inevitably get ruined and twisted so i was like that's something i can do also because i have responsibilities today so that's something i can do for the short term yeah we'll see how well his frustration level holds out and i can go do that because then it's those little pockets yeah and you won't get trash talked as much as when you try to shoot a basketball because that's not your forte when i was winning Yes. Really? I. They're I, that bad. We played. We played horse, <laughs> and I was winning. Wow. By like four letters. Wow. And I, then that's when he started trash talking me, and I was like, I don't know why you're trash talking me. Mm. You're losing. So then I had to trash talk small bits. It didn't put him in his place, and he kept going because he hangs around teenagers too much. Who won that game? Um. I ended up letting him win. Letting him win. Because I kept doing That's the most competitive thing I've ever heard you say in your whole life. (laughs) I'm serious. I wanted it to end because I needed to go in and do dinner because we just kept like doing crazy hard shots that, you know. So then I was like, I'm just going to do some easy shots, some free throws, and yes. Speaking of our youngest, I have been much more focused on this parenting not 
not because it's the necessary thing that's most important and not so that our kids will be a trophy for us because of their achievements, but just, just spending time with them because spending time with them is good. Mm-hmm. And I've had some really amazing <laughs> results from that. Andrew, that you're talking about, our youngest, he and I have gone to a few University of Denver soccer games recently. And at a game last weekend, we, I, I don't know why, I think our daughter asked us what we she talked about. She texted like what know. you guys were doing anyway, this the, weekend. The, the question came to me, what did you guys talk about at the game? And so I actually, I made a list of the things that we talked about. And I want to share this with our listeners because if you can't have fun with a kid that wants to talk about this, there's something wrong with you. We talked about soccer. We talked about football. We talked about music. We talked about movies. We talked about movie quotes. We talked about the University of Denver pool, which is right next to the soccer stadium. We talked about where we parked. We talked about the lacrosse stadium at the University of Denver. We talked about the people in front of us. We talked about the people behind us. We talked about his sweatshirt. We talked about the angle of the moon in the sky. We talked about the ball boys, the previous game we had been to, the previous night game we had been to. We talked about my shoes and his shoes. I'm not sure why we talked about those. We talked about the fact that his shirt matched the color of the visiting team. We talked about his hurdy knee, which spawned a conversation about ligaments, which led to a conversation about tendons and nerves. We talked about the hill that's behind the stadium. We talked about the reserve ticket seats, the, the expensive seats that we were not sitting in. We talked about the men's room sink water. We talked about Pikachu, which I still don't really know what Pikachu is. I was kind of not listening during that part of the conversation. And we talked about elephants. And that... Elephants. Yes. And that was the conversation during the first half. So, if you can't have How, fun yeah. at a DU soccer game with our youngest son, then you're not trying very hard. So back to our topic. For me, the joyless recovery was, you know, it it's the same for anyone who is trying to break an addiction. It's the fir- that first year anyway is because of those neuro- neurotransmitters that aren't firing properly yet that are still hijacked by the alcohol. But you have to be totally sober and not have a secondary addiction that's hitting those um, dopamine. Oh, yeah. I mean, we didn't really talk about this on this episode. But yeah, if you just switch, if you're using marijuana so that you can keep from drinking, your brain's never going to heal. Yeah, or gambling or shopping or sex, whatever. You have to have a a free of addiction. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. I just wanted to clarify. No, it's... it's, Because transferring your addiction to something else isn't going to... You're still going to have... You're going to struggle. Be joyless in Mudville. Absolutely. So a joyless recovery is is because of the chemical thing that's happening in your brain. It's really beyond your control. Um, but in my case, for me, it was also because my because of my focus on achievement, as opposed to just a focus on enjoying the present. Um, so, you know, and 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 here's the thing: um, when we give up alcohol as our primary addiction and we stop being an asshole to our spouse, that doesn't come across as achievement for us. So that's nothing to be celebrated. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, but just because I stopped being a drunk asshole, I didn't I didn't feel like I deserved a reward or I, I wasn't super proud of myself. So there was no, 
there was no joy in just, you know, stopping my, it, it would be nice if sobriety carried with it this, and it does for a short period of time for some people, they call it the pink cloud. When you're finally addressing the thing that's the problem in your life, you can feel good about that for, for some period of time, weeks, maybe months. But just stopping being an asshole does not in and of itself over the long term bring joy. You have to wait for those neurotransmitters to fix and you have to take care of your underlying cause, whether that's getting help for your childhood trauma, which is a big deal and not easy, um, or changing your focus away from achievement to some better, more natural things, the way we're supposed to live. Um, you know, right now, maybe this is the reason that we chose this for the topic for the podcast, but I've been in a bit of a rut. Um, I am struggling to drop my achievement mindset right now. We've had a number of things not really going our way. Um, and it's, it's been a struggle. So, you know, when it comes to this achievement focus, it's gonna ebb and flow. It's not like we can, we're always good at living in the present all the time. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. Um, but the more time I spend focusing on dropping that achievement mindset and just enjoying the things that are are here and now and today, the better off I'll be. So now that we're finished recording this podcast, I think, you, as you mentioned, it's a day off school here in Denver. I'm going to go find Andrew and talk about some ligaments and tendons. <laughs> Do you have an issue? No, it's just Fun. that's something he likes to talk about. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.